All right, well, welcome to part five of our Welcome Home series. Happy Labor Day weekend to you guys. I hope you're having a great weekend, and thanks for being in church. I was looking at the attendance figures over the last 10 years, and every year at Memorial Day and Labor Day, it just tanks. So I know we've got the really, really hungry spiritual crowd here, and I'm just proud of you guys for putting God first on a holiday weekend, and I don't think you're going to be disappointed. God's got a really neat message for us. Welcome to those of you watching in The Point, enjoying your free donuts and coffee. Enjoy it for the rest of us over in The Point. For those of you who don't know, The Point is like a, a chapel room that we have here on campus. And if you ever want to watch in there and be part of the service from in there, you're welcome to. Well, today we're going to be talking about finding contentment in our lives. Friday night, I was hanging out with some good friends and Zoe, our six-year-old, was playing with their dog. His name is Gus. Here's a picture of Zoe and Gus. And uh, Zoe said to our friend, she said, this is the second best day of my life. And our friend said, well, what's the first? And Zoe said, the first will be when I get my own dog. So, <laughs> so I think I'm on the hook for that. But my, my plan as a strategic thinker is to wait until next spring because I don't want to be doing puppy potty training when it starts to get cold and snowy and freezing outside, we'll, we'll wait and do that next summer. So uh, a good friend was saying after one of the other services, he said, you now have your, your line for Zoe's wedding. When you're at the wedding reception and they give you the microphone, you can say, I happen to know this is only the third best day of Zoe's life. <laughs> you got to try to remember that one. So. How do we get that feeling of contentment? I mean, Zoe, we were there for about three hours, and she just, it's not like she played with the dog for a few minutes. I mean, she was inseparable for three hours from Gus. How do you get that feeling of satisfaction and contentment? How do you get satisfaction in your life? And what I mean by this is that feeling, maybe you've been there, you can imagine this feeling of a, a great Thanksgiving dinner, not afterwards when you're totally bloated, but like during the moment and you're, uh, you're just loving the, the gravy, the stuffing, the mashed potatoes, the turkey, whatever your favorite thing is, and, and you're satisfied. Not only in your belly are you satisfied, but you're also satisfied because you're surrounded by people who love you. You're in a place where you're comfortable and it's warm and it's safe and maybe the football game's on in the background or other, other things that you, just all your senses, you're just, you're completely satisfied in that moment, how do you get that? Or here's the harder question, how do you keep that? How do you keep a sense of satisfaction in your life? If I could tell you how to keep satisfaction in your life, would anyone here want to know the answer to that? I know that I sure do, and that's what we do here every weekend as we look into the Word of God to answer these kind of questions. I've been praying for you guys this week as I've been thinking on this idea and thinking on what God's going to teach us today. And I was thinking about the, the kind of contradiction of our culture right now, because if we think about the advertisements that we see at the Super Bowl and on TV, as well as the social media posts that we see from celebrities and others, the unspoken message, and sometimes it's outright spoken, is that to get satisfaction or to keep satisfaction, you need to buy the next model 
or you need to get up to a larger neighborhood, or you need to move up in your career, you need to climb the ladder of success, you need to get more, do more, be more, become more beautiful, surround yourself with more beautiful people. Almost all the messages in this multi-billion dollar industry of advertising tell us that if you get these things, then you will be satisfied. Now, the irony is, at the same time that we're uh, inundated with that message, every week we learn about another person who got all those things but isn't satisfied. Uh, One example would be Matt Lauer. Matt Lauer, earlier this year from the Today Show, it came out that Matt had been abusing his position of power and influence, had abusing his position and taking advantage of women who were working around him. Now, why would a person who has so much at stake, who has so much wealth, so much fame, I mean, rubbing shoulders with all the celebrities of the world, have you know, multiple estates, uh, all the cars and everything else a person would want, why would they risk all of that to make a stupid and foolish choice that wrongs another person? And why would they do that over and over again? Well, there's probably a lot of answers to that question, but a foundational answer that no one can deny is clearly Matt was still unsatisfied in his life. He got all the stuff that we're all working so hard to get, but he still wasn't satisfied, and he's not the only one. That was true for Kevin Spacey. It was true for Charlie Rose of CBS and PBS. In fact, in the last year, we've seen dozens of these men in very powerful positions who had everything that is supposed to satisfy, we've seen dozens of them lose their position and their annual income because they abused their power. And why would they have done that unless they weren't still unsatisfied? We see it sadly in the high profile suicides of people like Robin Williams and Whitney Houston. We also see it in just the personal drama and dysfunction in the lives of people like Johnny Depp or you think of Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie you know for a long time the whole world's like Brangelina they're the two most beautiful people ever their life if they get together has to be perfect and now they're going through a divorce and it's just as nasty as anyone else's divorce so if all the people who get all the stuff still have something missing then here becomes the question If they get all the stuff and still aren't satisfied in a lasting way, then do normal people like me and you, do we have any chance of actually keeping satisfaction in our lives? How can you get and keep satisfaction? Well, we're going to look into God's Word and find a really profound answer to this question. This answer is written by a man who was a king at the time, and actually had more fame than Matt Lauer, more wealth than Johnny Depp, more real estate than Charlie Rose. This passage was actually written 3,000 years ago. So it's pretty fascinating how on point it is with what's happening in our world today. And here's what God tells us through this guy named Solomon in this book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon, as he acquired more and more wealth, And as a king, as he interacted with other kings and queens and world leaders, he looked at all that wealth and he looked at life and he made these deep, profound observations. And here's what he writes in Ecclesiastes chapter 6, middle of this book. He says, I've seen another evil. And by evil, he means this is a sad thing. This is a thing that 
is un- upsetting to him. He says, I've seen a, a sad thing under the sun. It weighs heavily on me. God gives a person wealth, possessions, and honor so that they lack nothing their heart desires. Now, that describes the group of people we've been talking about, right? These high-profile people who get They get all the stuff that's supposed to satisfy. Nothing their heart desires is lacking. But now look at the second part of verse 2. But God does not enable them to enjoy all that stuff that they've got. And so someone else enjoys it instead. So really, really profound insight. This idea that a person could have all the stuff and God could withdraw from them the ability to enjoy the stuff. And more positively, you might be in a place where you don't have all the stuff, and God can give to you the ability to enjoy what you already have. And here's the point that Solomon's going to make and that we're going to see throughout the Word of God today is that only God delivers lasting satisfaction. Only God delivers lasting satisfaction. Now, if you were to think of the, your favorite car in a brand new model, and if I could tell you that today there was one waiting for you in the parking lot, would it make you happy? Would it be good for you? Absolutely, okay? I am not denying that reality. And actually, Solomon says throughout Ecclesiastes, there's nothing evil or wrong with working hard to get nice things and enjoy those things. There's nothing wrong with that. But what he's gonna say is those things They only deliver temporary entertainment. They do not deliver lasting satisfaction. So whatever thing it is that you think would make you happy, yes, it will give you some entertainment for a little while, but after months or years, it in and of itself will not deliver lasting satisfaction. If you get a cancer diagnosis and you go and sit in a brand new car, it's still a cancer diagnosis. That thing is entertaining, but it's not deeply fulfilling. And the same is true of achievement, of success, of relationships. So that that next boyfriend or girlfriend, that next promotion in your career, that next step in your business that you own, those are all fine things and they all deliver some temporary entertainment. But none of them, God says through Solomon, can deliver lasting satisfaction. That only comes from the creator who made life and who can give you the gift of fulfillment. Well, I was doing some research on Solomon, the guy who wrote those verses we read. There's a passage in 1 Kings 10. It describes the amount of gold that Solomon would accrue on an annual basis. So I took that amount of gold and I multiplied it by the price of gold per ounce today, and it came out to 1 billion, 100 million dollars per year. That's how much Solomon, who's a documented person in history who wrote these words we're reading, that's how much he made, not in his lifetime, but per year. And by the way, because he was a king, he didn't have any income tax. So that's pretty cool for Solomon, okay? So as a news reporter and journalist, I interviewed a number of people who were billionaires and spent some time with some of them, significant time with some of them. Most of them worked their entire lives to get a fortune of a billion dollars. That's 100 million times 10. Solomon was making that much every year. I've never met anyone who makes that much every year. And he writes this book of Ecclesiastes as a letter to his kids 
to kind of give them advice about life. Here's how to use your life, and here's what to avoid in life. And it's within this letter that he makes, point one on your outline, this profound observation that lasting fulfillment cannot be bought or achieved. You can buy temporary entertainment, you can achieve temporary entertainment, but you can't buy or achieve lasting fulfillment. They, that can only be given by God. So, so here's the beauty. There's a negative half and a positive half of what we're learning. The negative half is if you spend your whole life trying to get lasting fulfillment from those things, you will be unsatisfied. The positive half is God is waiting and desiring to give you a fulfilling life as a gift. Lasting fulfillment can't be bought or achieved. It can only be given by God. And it's such an interesting insight because it essentially means you could get the promotion you want or you could get the next thing you want in life but then not have the ability to enjoy it. Or on the other hand, you could not get the promotion or the thing you want and God could give you the ability to enjoy what you already have. It's kind of a, you know, changes the way we look at the world. Changes the way we look at the world. In high school, my buddies and I, we would play this game called Would You Rather? Would you rather, we would play this on you know, bus rides when we were riding to a basketball game or a soccer game. We did not have internet on our phones at that time, and so we had to actually use our brains and get creative. And, and would you rather is this game where, you know, uh, I'll, try not, I'll try to filter this for an appropriate audience here, but you, you know, one person, you, you come up with two terrible scenarios, like, you know, would you rather have your leg sawed off or never be able to taste food again, right? And the other person has to pick between these two terrible things and you go back and forth on would you rather. So let me give you a would you rather for what we're learning today. Would you rather sit down in front of your favorite meal, whatever your favorite meal is, but you sit down in front of it and you've just burned your tongue on a hot cup of coffee or a hot piece of pizza, and so it's your favorite food, but you have no taste buds, you can't taste it. Would you rather have that or would you rather sit down for your second favorite meal and your taste buds are fine? Which would you pick? I, I'll take my second favorite meal and be able to taste it, okay? That's what I would pick. And that's a little bit of what Solomon's saying here. He's saying, would you rather have excessive wealth and be able, unable to taste it? You have it, but you don't have taste buds. Or would you rather have uh, less wealth but be able to taste it. And again, his point is not that wealth, wealth is not morally right or wrong. But he says, if you look to it to do what it can't accomplish, you're gonna be uh, disappointed in life. And I have seen this as a journalist and also as a pastor. I've seen people who live in a fairly modest apartment. They use public transportation. They don't have a lot of assets to their name. They wake up in the morning and they're like, the sun is shining they have a little pet that they love. They just, their life, they enjoy every moment of their life. And I've known some people, it's not true of everyone who lives in an apartment. And this other thing is not true of everyone who has a huge estate with, you know, hundreds of acres and horse barns and, you know, dozens of cars. But there's some people who wake up in that setting and they wake up and they're, they're, they're grumpy. They're not happy. They're not able to look out the window and enjoy it. If you had to pick between the two, Solomon says, instead of seeking fulfillment through stuff, seek the fulfiller who can give you the ability to enjoy the stuff you already have, the health you already have, the relationships that you already have. So here's a question, and I'm, you know, this is just between you and God. On a scale of one to ten, 
how much would you say you are enjoying or satisfied with the stuff, the things, the life, the health that you already have? Again, you you don't have to tell this number to your spouse, to your kids, to me, to anyone. This is just you and God. We're not going to take a vote. I'm not going to have a raise of hands. Think of where you are in life. How much do you enjoy your life? Pick a number between 1 and 10 that symbolizes that. Are you at a 3? Are you at a 7? And here's the exciting thing about this profound truth God's teaching us today. God wants to bump that up a couple notches wherever you are. He wants to bump that up a couple notches, and he's going to share with us how to do that as we keep journeying through Scripture today. I've told some of you this story before about a time when I was interviewing a billionaire named Don Laughlin. Don Laughlin's a casino tycoon in Nevada. He owns a city actually called Laughlin, Nevada that maybe you've heard of. And Don Laughlin worked and worked uh, about as hard as a person can work to build his empire. He grew up in poverty. He actually grew up during the Great Depression and trapped raccoons. And I was standing with Don Laughlin on the top floor of his casino, the penthouse floor, looking out over the river of his city that he has built. And, you know, Don was showing me a model of his private jet. His helicopter was out the window. On the elevator on the way up, I had passed a floor where he has a whole floor of classic cars. And I'm a car guy, so that was awesome, okay? But here's the thing. Standing there with Don Laughlin, he's in his early 80s. And the reason I was interviewing him is, is that Don was one of a number of people I was profiling for a story of uh, high net worth people who are having their bodies flash frozen the moment they die. So the moment Don dies, his body will be flash frozen like sushi is. And his hope, his only hope, as he realizes that for all he's gotten in life, he can't escape death. And sadly, because he doesn't believe in God, he doesn't believe in Jesus or heaven, the only hope he has is that he can have his body flash frozen and that he can set aside money that will motivate scientists to hopefully someday reanimate his corpse back to life. That's the only hope he has. And as I was interviewing him in his office for this story, he told me these words. He said, John, if I could go back to being nine years old and living in poverty and having nothing, If I could trade today all of this for being nine years old again with nothing, I would do it like that. Because he realizes as he's approaching death that he doesn't have the hope of eternal life. And so he has all this stuff and he has exactly what Solomon wrote about 3,000 years ago, very little ability to enjoy it because he's afraid of death. And you know, at that point in my life, I was a Jesus follower and my relationship with God was really growing. And as I took that elevator down and as I stopped on the floor where he has all his collector cars and I walked around and enjoyed looking at them, I got in my old Nissan Maxima that I had at the time and it was a car that I enjoyed. And I realized in that moment that I was a richer man than Don Laughlin. And the reason I was richer is not because I'm some kind of better person, because I'm not, but because of what I've found in Christ. Because I'm not afraid of death. I know that when I die, it's going to be a promotion, and my life's going to be way better. And that's where I'm going to buy collector cars, okay? <laughs> so I'm not afraid of death, but not only that, God has given me, again, not because of my disposition or because I'm some noble person, but as I have found my identity in Christ and my purpose in Him, He has given me an ability to enjoy 
the humble things that I do have. He's given me the ability to enjoy driving a Toyota Land Cruiser that's 18 years old and has 280,000 miles on it. I love that truck. I love it. I think I like it more than a lot of people with new cars like their cars. I just, I love it. It's one of the best SUVs ever built. And I, I just love it. But it has come from seeking God first. And this is the promise that Jesus is going to make in this next text. So let's just think about what we've learned. It's not about the stuff you have. Again, the stuff's not evil, but it's about having the ability to enjoy what you have. Now, Jesus is going to give you a promise for you. Here's how you can have the ability to enjoy what you already have. Here's what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He's writing in the context of people who are worried about, are we going to have enough food? Are we going to have clothes that look cool? And here's what he says in that context. He says, people who don't know God, they run after all that stuff as if that is the stuff that matters. And again, that stuff's not evil, but he says, don't, don't pursue that stuff like it will fulfill. Instead, he says, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Righteousness means his way of living. Seek God's way of living your life. And when you do that, this is a promise from Jesus, all these things, the, the food you want to have, the, the, you know, having clothes, all those things will be given to you as well. Seek first the kingdom of God and those other things will come to you as well. Now, some people twist this verse and sometimes you'll see preachers on TV twist this verse and they'll say, so if you give your money to our ministry, you'll become a millionaire. You know, you give your money to our ministry, you'll never be sick again. That's not what Jesus is saying here, okay? Jesus, we have to look at the whole counsel of God's word. He said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. So what Jesus promises in this life is not a pain-free, problem-free life, but a life that has a deep sense of fulfillment and contentment even when we walk through seasons of cancer and car accidents and difficulty. And what Jesus says here is, if you seek those external things, they can't give you the lasting fulfillment. But if you seek my kingdom and my way of life, I'll take care of your physical needs and I'll also give you the ability to enjoy what you have. So here's number two on your outline. It's a promise. When I seek God first, he gives satisfaction and fulfillment. I told you about that moment with Don Laughlin, one of those moments in my life I'll just never forget hearing him say, I would trade it all to be a nine-year-old living in poverty again. And I contrast that moment with another man in my life, a guy named Jonathan Koff. Uh, Jonathan Koff was a, just a healthy, strong young man who owned a business in Prescott, Arizona. Prescott, Arizona is kind of like a retirement town. It's almost like Mayberry. It's got this cute little courthouse high elevation in the mountains, so it's a lot like Colorado. You've got the pine trees, really mild seasons. It's always sunny. It's just, a, it's a great place to live. He owned a business. He had a beautiful young wife, two beautiful young children, and as he started to seek God first in his life, God started to give him a heart for people who've never heard about Jesus. And, and God led him and ultimately called him to sell his business, sell his home, and take his family, and they moved to a remote jungle in Papua New Guinea. Uh, Papua New Guinea is one of the last places of the world that's completely undeveloped. There are still cannibalistic tribes there. God called my friend Jonathan Koff to go to a tribe that had never seen white people, had never heard the name of Jesus, and they were still cannibalistic. They actually still ate people. And Jonathan Koff sold everything, took his wife and kids, this was 30 years ago now, 
to this little village. Well, now Jonathan Koff, uh, he comes home about every two years, and whenever I see him in person, one, he's in incredible health because he eats no processed foods. You know, everything's fresh out of the jungle. But, but here's the thing. Jonathan Koff and his wife and his kids, they, they left everything. They found this tribe. They showed them God's love through actions. They learned their language. They taught them how to write, and they taught them literacy. They created a school. They translated key books of the Bible into that language. They taught them about Jesus. Dozens of people in the tribe trusted in Jesus. They taught the tribe to stop eating people, which is a good thing. And now that tribe has disciples that Jonathan Koff has made that get sent out to other tribes. And there's this little spiritual revival happening in a jungle where there's no electricity and no internet access. And Jonathan Koff, if you can meet him, if you can sit down with him at a meal, you will experience time with one of the most deeply fulfilled and satisfied people that I've ever met. And I've met a lot of different kinds of people. Now, does that mean to get fulfillment, you have to sell everything and go to Papua New Guinea? That's not the point. The point is that Jonathan Koff sought first God and his kingdom and his way of living. For Jonathan Koff, that meant going to Papua New Guinea. For me, that meant going to Brownsburg, Indiana. For you, I don't know exactly what it means. God will show you, but here's what I know. As you seek God first and say, God, my time is yours, my treasure is yours, my life is yours, I want to go all in for your kingdom, that's where deep fulfillment and satisfaction are found. Well, I've told some of you about a tough job that I used to have. I grew up as a car guy. I still am a car guy. And I grew up in Michigan. I mean, if it was not for Car and Driver magazine, Motor Trend, Road and Track, Hot Rod and Hot Rodder, if it was not for those magazines, I probably would not know how to read. That's how I learned to read. And my dream growing up was always to work with cars. So it was pretty ironic. Shortly after I really became a devoted Jesus follower, I was working as a newspaper editor, and we started running an auto column. And that meant that every week I would get a different brand new car to drive from the manufacturers. So the way this worked for the auto review is I would very simply send an email to the press fleet manager of just what make and model do I want, and I'd get a brand new one with a full tank of gas delivered to my office every week, just week after week. So you do on a Range Rover next week, do you want a Jaguar next week, do you, what do you want? And, and it, was, it was tough, okay? It was a really tough job, okay? So here's a picture of uh, one of my favorite cars of those. Not the most expensive car I ever tested. This isn't just a Mustang, this is a Shelby GT500 Special Edition. So it had 600 horsepower with a six-speed manual transmission live rear transaxle. So, I mean, you could have a lot of fun with the back end of that car. Those back tires were pretty much like racing slicks with a little bit of tread in the middle. And I had a blast. The, actually, Jack's in this picture. If you zoom in, you can see Jack chewing on the steering wheel. <laughs> so, you know, when, when Mel and I first met, I was, you know, having these cars every week. And as our family started to grow, actually, when God called me out of journalism, I became a pastor. The first church I went to, things were really tight financially, so I kept doing the auto review so I wouldn't have to have any kind of car expenses. So for a while, I was at this tiny church in the mountains with 40 people, and I'd roll in in like, you know, $120,000 AMG Mercedes, and everyone's like, what's going on at that church, you know? So I had a lot of explaining to do. But 
here, here's what I learned, and I love cars, and there's absolutely, please don't hear in anything I say that there's anything wrong with having a nice car, because there's not, okay? And Solomon writes about that. He says, go for it. Work hard. Get the stuff you want, but get it knowing that ultimate satisfaction is found in God, and that those things bring temporary entertainment. And here's what I found. I'll show you a picture of one of the Jaguars that I was looking back through my phone of just pictures of, you know, so, you know, every week, just a different, different car, never paid a penny in insurance, never paid a penny for gas, never had a car payment. I mean, just these things were, it was just complete enjoyment at no cost. But here's what I learned. I did this for almost 10 years. I learned that if you have a really bad day, I mean, like if you have a health problem or you're going through a breakup, if you have a really bad day and you get into a $150,000 B12 BMW, it's still a really bad day. And you might not believe that if you haven't driven that on a normal, but it's, it's true. A day is just as bad in, in a high-end car as it is in a Camry. Okay, and here's the other thing I learned, because I got my first Toyota Land Cruiser in 1995 with 200,000 miles, because I was like, I should have a vehicle to drive, you know, if there's an off week and I don't have a press car. Um, so I was like, I'll get this old reliable, these old Toyotas are reliable. And I started over time to fall in love with my old SUV that had 200,000 miles. So much so that I started to realize on a bad day, being in a Jag or, you know, nothing wrong with them, but a bad day is just still a bad day. I started to realize on a good day, if I'm in my 200,000-mile Toyota, it's still a good day. And I started to realize that the, the deeper fulfillment doesn't come from those things. So again, they're not bad, but they can only deliver certain things in life. Now, I've got a little illustration for you guys here. Some of you know we have a retention pond out back here. Now, a lot of you guys live in neighborhoods that have ponds. Some of you have ponds on your property. Ponds are great things. Jack and I fish, uh, fished recently here in the one on our property, on the church property. And so here's some pond water. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing evil with it. Uh, here's some water from a deep well. Nothing good or evil with this either. But here's the thing. A pond is a great thing for enjoyment. It's a great thing to look at. It's a great thing to watch the wildlife, to fish in. But if you have a pond or if you live near a pond, I would not recommend drinking from it. And I wouldn't recommend, you know, bathing in it. Uh, there's a lot of little microbes and things going on in here. There's got to be. So is this evil? Not at all. But if you look to it to do something that only clean water from deep, deep down in a well can do, you're, you're going to get a stomachache. And Solomon kind of says, nice stuff, achievement, relationships, beauty, all the things that are advertised, they're, they're not evil. There's a place for them. But if you drink them to satisfy your soul well, you're going to get a stomachache. And that's why Jesus described himself as the living water. I know some of you are just like, is John going to spill that? Is John going to spill that? I didn't, okay? Hopefully, hopefully it made a, made a point. I wonder, here's the question, what have you been drinking from for the satisfaction of your soul? What have you been drinking from for the satisfaction of your soul? So what have we learned? Well, my deepest satisfaction won't come from stuff or position or popularity. It comes from God. I get that 
as a free gift from God when I seek first his kingdom and his way of life. Now, obviously you guys are people who want to do that or you wouldn't be at church on a holiday weekend. We're a room full of people. You're saying, I want to seek God first. How do I do that? Well, I'd take you back to Matthew 6 because Jesus is going to really unpack that in Matthew 6. And on your own time in your Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, we'll get you a life application study Bible. You can read Matthew 6. There's a lot of truths in there. But I'm going to teach you, share with you the most practical one, and it comes from verse 21 of Matthew 6. Jesus says this. He says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Sometimes you'll hear people misquote this verse and they'll say, where your heart is, your treasure will be also, because that makes sense to us. But Jesus, he actually flips it. He says, your treasure, if this is a train, your treasure is the locomotive and your heart is the caboose. So where you put your treasure, your heart follows. Might be a delayed response, but it follows there. And I've seen this when I've owned nice cars that have really nice paint jobs and I, I park them and a family pulls up in an SUV and a kid jumps out and slams their door open and it dings into the high-end paint job. My heart has physically hurt when that has happened in previous times in my life, okay? Why did my heart hurt when someone dinged the paint? Because that's where my treasure was, okay? And it's also true where, where you put your treasure, this is what I call a law of spiritual physics. A law of spiritual physics. I seek God first by placing my treasure into his kingdom. Now, all throughout scripture, we have these principles that I call laws of spiritual physics, and they're just like the laws of physical physics. So one of those laws is gravity, right? If I were to step off of this tall stage, I would go down because of gravity. And you can go through life and you can deny, well, I'm not a gravity believer. I don't believe in that stuff, right? You can, you can choose to not believe it, but it's still there. And your life goes best if you acknowledge it and play by the rules that are, are beyond us and are there. That's true in the physical realm. It's also true in the spiritual realm. And God gives us multiple laws of spiritual physics, like the reality that sin separated all of humanity from God, that Jesus is the only way back to God. And, and that's the most important thing for your fulfillment in life is your relationship with Jesus. And then as you grow in your relationship with Jesus, he teaches us this in Matthew 6, where your treasure is, he's given you a free will. You get to pick, what are you gonna do with your talent? What are you gonna do with your time? What are you gonna do with your health? What are you gonna do with your opportunity, with your beauty, with your influence? What are you gonna do with your financial treasure? All these different kinds of treasure that God has given you as an individual, where are you gonna invest your treasures and Jesus says, wherever you invest them, your heart will follow. And so if all of your investment is in a certain property and that property burns down, your heart is going to be deeply grieved. And he, again, he's not saying there's anything wrong with investing in some earthly things, but he's saying where your treasure is, your heart will follow. And, and what I love about this is it gives us some control. Because the time that I learned this principle in my life was when I was still working as a, a journalist, and I was single, you know, had a house, uh, you know, nice house, had these cars coming to me every week, had a lot of disposable income, did not have any kids or really any bills, and, and life was great. And I was, you know, I'd kind of give a little bit to God's kingdom here and there. 
and I was learning to give him my time as I served in a little small group with some of my friends. But then one day I was reading a devotional that I read called My Utmost for His Highest, and I came across this quote from an author named Oswald Chambers. He said this, worship is what you do with your best. Worship is what you do with your best. And I started to think about my life. Okay, what am I doing with the best of my talent? What am I doing with the best of my time? And I remember actually the little small group of, of friends, I, I remember telling them what God was doing in my heart and saying, you know, I was thinking about it. If my favorite writer, because I was a full-time writer at the time, if my favorite writer who I look up to, if I found out they were coming over to my house for dinner, or you can imagine in your life, a celebrity, a politician, someone you look up to, the you know, most important person in the world who you would love to have dinner with, they come over to your house for dinner. I wouldn't want if that author showed up at my house to open the fridge and be like, I've got like half a leftover hot dog in a Ziploc bag. I think this Little Caesars leftover pizza is still okay. Do you want me to heat you up a piece? You know, I wouldn't want to give that person my leftovers. I'd want to give them a really good fresh meal. And I realized that I was starting to learn how to give God the best of my time and my talent, but that when it came to my treasure, I was really kind of giving him the leftovers. I'd kind of play every month, and with what was left over, I'd you know, write a, a little check of what was left over. And it was a turning point in my life where I decided, okay, based on these principles of scripture that I want to seek first the kingdom of God, I'm going to start making that the first check that I write every month. You know, some of you are so young, you're like, what's a check, okay? It's a piece of paper that correlates to a bank account, all right? Uh, you can PayPal or whatever nowadays, but I like writing checks because there's a physicality to it. Uh, and I decided I'm going to start, instead of giving God my leftovers, giving him given him the first thing. And, you know, it was all budgeted out. The amount didn't change that much, but a big thing changed in my heart. And that's really in my life when things started, when, when all of a sudden, you know, I started studying the Bible more and just, it, it became a turning point in my life is what I'm trying to, to say. And what I want to encourage you with today is just to think, let's go back to this law of spiritual physics. What's the treasure that you could place into God's kingdom to start better seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness. For some of you, it's your time. For some of you, it's your talent. You've got these amazing talents that you use in the marketplace, but you've never really applied them to God's work. Um, for some of you, it's starting to give anything. And if the walls are going up and you're thinking, oh, John wants my money. The church is in great shape financially. I don't want your money. God's not even after your money. But God does want you to experience the deeper satisfaction that comes when you say, God, I worship you. I trust you and that deep fulfillment that comes when you seek first his kingdom and righteousness. So if you're leery about like, oh, Connection Point wants my money, feel free to give it somewhere else where Jesus is being preached and where his word is being honored. The point of this is about your heart and about saying, what's the one step you could take today? Just one step for you that says, I'm gonna do something practical in the physical realm to start moving my heart in the spiritual realm because I wanna seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. Uh, I'm going to pray together. I'm going to give you a chance to just reflect on that. 
I don't want to play the Holy Spirit and try to tell you what that is in your life. The Holy Spirit will tell you what that is in your life. But what God is after is your heart. Uh, So would you pray together with me here for just a moment? Father, Lord, I thank you in my life. Uh, I remember when I heard there's a church in Brownsburg, Indiana. There's no press fleet in Brownsburg, Lord. Can't drive new cars in Brownsburg. And Lord, uh, as I have followed you, I think of the enjoyment you give me in my Toyota Land Cruiser with 280,000 miles. And it's, not, it's, it's, it's nothing fake to say, I love that truck so much. You've given me so much enjoyment. God, I'm so fulfilled in the life you've given me. I'm so fulfilled. And Lord, I know it's not because of really what I've done. It's just from living life your way. And God, I know you desire that for everyone in this room, that it's not about the material stuff. It's about the heart relationship to you. And Lord, every person in this room, you designed to be in a deeply fulfilling relationship with you. And I just pray that right now, God, that you'd break down the barriers in in each of our hearts where we're clinging to, you know, just our way of doing things. Would you just break down those barriers for each of us, God, to look to you as the one who gives fulfillment and to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. Maybe there's someone in here who you are gonna call as a missionary to New Guinea. Maybe there's someone in here who you are gonna call to be a pastor. Or maybe there's a lot of us in here that you're gonna call to serve you in our workplaces, to serve you raising our kids, to serve you in a season of retirement that is not a pause, but is when life really begins of going all in to help others and to unleash God's kingdom on earth. God, you're working in our hearts. You're stirring desires. And so, Jesus, this idea that where our treasure is, our heart will follow. You know, I didn't make it up. You said it as almighty God. It's a a law of spiritual physics. And so, We can pretend it doesn't work that way, but God, each of us, if we really love you with our heart, it will show up in our treasure. And so, Lord, just show us in this room, what treasure do we need to place into your kingdom to really seek you first? For some, it's time. For some, it's money. For some, it's health. I'm gonna use my health. I'm gonna use my opportunity. Lord, for each of us, will you just show us what that next step is? Is it giving consistently to God's work? Is it giving sacrificially to God's work? Is it giving my time to God's work? Lord, I think of that turning point when I was still working as a reporter and and thinking that satisfaction came from success and from famous people and from nice cars and those things were all fun. But Lord, I think of what fulfillment I have now. And I just want that for everyone in this room. So Lord, we're gonna, we're gonna just, we're gonna sing for a little bit. Or maybe we're just gonna pray the words, some of the people in here. But what we're doing is we are, we're taking what we've learned and we're acting on it. We're saying, God, I'm gonna build my life on the foundation of Christ. I'm not gonna build my life on the shifting sands of things that can be taken away or things that will remain on earth when I go to heaven. I'm gonna build my life on Christ. So God, as we sing this now, Lord, would you just make it a prayer? Help us to choose you and worship you. And as you're sitting there, I know we normally stand to sing, but let's just stay seated. 
And, and let's just really sing this as a prayer. You can keep your eyes closed if you want. However you best connect to God and just say, God, I will build my life upon you. Let's sing it together now.